that inspires action in other people is when they know your why. And I think sharing that with your team is critical and sharing that with your recruits is critical to help them get a feel for what's motivating you. And that really cuts through all the bells and the whistles, right? I mean, I can tell them where I'm going to send them and I can tell them the skills they're going to get here. But ultimately, I know I'll be successful when 25 years down the road, they've learned principles and they've become leaders and they're helping other people do it. That's awesome. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Snow College, one of the top junior college programs in the state of Utah, Andrew May. Coach May is here today to discuss his learnings as a first-year head coach on culture building, offensive design, stress management, and much, much more. And we talk attacking mismatches and teaching spacing during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the MBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis to our almost 600 video archive on SGTV, private coaching community app, and our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Andrew May. Coach May, really appreciate you coming on. We've been talking about this for a while, and we're really excited to get into a lot of stuff with you today. So thanks for making the time. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, Obviously, pretty much anybody that's in college basketball is listening to you guys. I think I represent the slappies or the (laughs) followers of Flapping Glass Uh, that you guys did an unbelievable job. And, uh, you know, I thought since Jim Rome has the clones, I can <laughs> lead the charge with the slappies. So that's great. The slappies. Yeah, we've, <laughs> Pat and I have been called much worse. <laughs> <laughs> yep. that's, that's great. Well, we'll have to give you some royalties when we come out with yeah. the teachers. <laughs> <Perfect>. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And like I said, we're excited to have you on today to pick your brain on a number of things and to dive into this. This is a conversation that you and I had a year ago when we were talking about the podcast and whatnot, and you were just taking over as first-time head coach at the junior college level. You've been at other levels of basketball as an assistant, and we'll talk about that. I'm sure that'll come up as well. But we decided to push this till after your first year, and you were going to basically journal, take notes, all your thoughts on what you learned after your first year as a head coach at the JC level. And so that's where we want to start this conversation on what's in that notebook of yours. I, mean, I know there's a ton of stuff as to what you took away from the season. So we'll start broadly with it. And I guess the things that you were surprised that you learned so much about as a first year head coach. Yeah. I mean, obviously all of us have plans and ideas and focuses when we get our chance to be that head coach, like what we want to do. And I mean, the surprises are on my list of what did you learn this season? You know, and I would say, first of all, one of the highlights was when you guys know that Southwest Airlines bailed and uh, everything <laughs> fell apart December 26th, we were flying on one of those flights. So that's what I would say is number one. <laughs> that. But no, I mean, the list is huge. Big, big number one takeaway for me from this season was like my job as a coach is to help develop our players characteristics as far as like resilience um and like you guys talked about in your last one consistency kind of our core values of our program but actually developing them in our guys and that's to me like the biggest struggle challenge coming into it i was like i've got great ideas i've got a bunch of stuff that we're going to do that's going to be awesome but at the end of the day like that is what i'm trying to do is develop in our guys that winning championship character and it's super hard to do that's super hard to do and that to me was the number one thing is when i 
am helping our guys through our season when we're experiencing wins and losses and highs and lows and all of that stuff. It's what they'll take away for the rest of their lives, for sure, is that ability to come back from disappointment. And the best teams that I've seen, everybody runs stuff that's different. Everybody's got their own brand and their own techniques and their own stuff. But at the end of the day, if I can help our guys continue to stay focused, continue to overcome adversity, continue to have hope that things are going to work out. Ultimately, once that belief changes into knowledge that, hey, I know we're going to come back. I know we're going to continue to battle. That to me was the paradigm shift for me that happened as a first year head coach is, I mean, when you work with other great coaches, you have tons of great ideas, but that was one for sure. And I've got a litany of other ones, but that was number one out of the gates. Coach, if I could just actually dive in on one of the things you just said, you talked about, you know, helping young men and getting them to believe, play better, all that sort of stuff. Going from an assistant to a head coach and all of a sudden you're the ultimate decision maker. And, you know, as an assistant, you can most of the time be the players, Kai. And then as a head coach, you're making the ultimate decisions on playing time and all those sorts of things. And did you notice any difference in how you motivate, how you bring players together did it feel different as a head coach this first year as opposed to past seasons when you're an assistant? Yeah, I mean, the difference is huge. You know, they talk about that 18 inches or whatever you move over to, to yeah. be in that seat. The freedom that you have as the head coach is like, man, all those great ideas I had, what is stopping me from doing them? And there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's me. It's me deciding, okay, where am I going to spend my time? Where am I going to prioritize my efforts and our collective efforts as a team? And I definitely think some of the things that we did well was getting buy-in out of the gates from our guys, buying into the culture that they had already had here some success for sure at Snow, but making it our own and getting our guys to buy in. And to me, that's one of the greatest challenges of coaching junior college, of coaching any level, is like, how do we establish our culture that's buying into what I want to do and what we want to do? And I think that mindset as a coach of like, hey, this is my laboratory now and I get to do whatever I want versus, okay, I need to get these guys all in on whatever it is we're going to do. And that to me is the challenge for sure. And we did some definitely great things in developing that. One of the things for sure, as we were laying kind of the foundation of our culture was talking about what's our mission as a team. And we talked about, you know, having our guys thoughtfully reflect on why does our team even exist was for a lot of our dudes, just they'd never thought about it. Of course, they came here for their own benefits. What are the, you know, where are we going to push them to? They're going to get to the division one level, all that stuff. But having them really reflect on as a team, guys, what is the purpose of our team? Why are we here? And what they really quickly found was that it's not about us individually and about what we're trying to do. What we represent are the generations of players that have come before us and laid the path. And our community that we represent, our school that we represent, the students that we represent, all of those factors to me really expanded our guys' view of what our team was. Like, why are we doing what we're doing as a collective? And that, to me, starting at that point with them as a like, okay, guys, what's our purpose? It really helped clarify a lot of stuff. Like when we're behaving off the court, how we act in the classroom, all of those things when for us, what we ultimately decided was our mission was to become a team of leaders through consistency and sacrifice so that we could inspire our community and leave a legacy. That was our mission. And so when we, as a team, when we think about inspiring our community, when we go to the classroom or we're behaving off the court or we're doing all of these things, if that really is our mission, then doing stuff that would be contrary to that is immediately evident that, I mean, guys, that totally takes away from what we're trying to do. And so starting at that point and then building core values in, building our standards off of those things and doing that as a group. We're not watching film in the preseason. This is what we were doing all of preseason is kind of building our culture and doing that collectively. Like, okay, guys, what's important to us? What's going to get us to where we want to go? What are the characteristics of our team that we need to be and the, these values that we need to have for us to go where we want to go? And then with these values, how can we have standards that are going to represent those values? And to me, I mean, I've worked with super accomplished coaches, like the winningest coach in the state of Utah college, the winningest coach at BYU, and seeing like the cultures that they built and the ones that were the most successful were all in on those types of ideas. And so 
that was something for sure. I felt like, hey, if we did something good this year, it was that. Coach, if we can just hit a little bit more on your process of first establishing this mission and building your culture together. I mean, you said it, it was what you guys were focusing on in preseason. How long does it take? What, I guess, how would you structure the conversations, the meetings to get the proper, let's say, dialogue or get the guys like on task, on target about trying to really establish this mission statement? For sure. That's kind of our first meetings. Our very first meeting that we had, I mean, I told them more about why I coach, like why I'm here. And then we went around and had everybody share what's their personal why of playing college basketball and why they're here. And then moving the conversation to, okay, that's great. That's all our individual passions. And a lot of them are super aligned. I mean, none of us are coming to Snow College because we're getting paid millions of dollars. And like, you know, there's for sure a bunch of dudes that really, really want to hoop. And that's why we're here. But then moving it to, okay, so what is that asking our guys? And for sure, having them come up with the answers of, okay, guys, why are we here? And helping them walk through it, but not giving them the answers to me was critical to like, well, why are you guys sitting here today? How did you come to sit here? Well, who's paying for it? Okay, the school is. Well, how's the school paying for it? Walking them through the thought process of like, man, I'm I'm literally sitting here and there's scholarships that I'm getting, you know, school paid for because of people that have come before, because of this community that loves this team. Like when they think through all those things, it becomes more obvious to them about how our mission really is not just what are we going to do for ourselves. It's like, how can we inspire this community? And how are you guys going to develop as leaders that will help inspire this community? And once we kind of asked those questions and they kind of came up with the answers, we just built the mission statement together. And I kind of laid out our purpose and for sure some of the characteristics of it has to be other centered. It can't be my job is to make money. But as we talked them through that structure and a little bit of how we would do that through our consistency and our sacrifice, and then what would the end kind of results look like? walking them through what that should look like. Well, should the end results be we win 23 games or should it be? And I think helping them move beyond a purpose that's just this season, Mm -hmm. that's results oriented versus something that can be a thing that they're working on and that this program works on for the rest of their lives, to me, is a great motivating and unifying mission statement. And so then once we did that, we moved from, okay, that's the why of our team. Now we got to figure out the how. What's the how going to look like? And so we talked through and we one of the best things that we did was like, guys, what would be the things that would destroy the season? What would be the things that make our team terrible? And we made a humongous list of selfishness, of entitlement, of laziness, of inconsistencies. And we started banging all those onto the wall. And then we go, okay, so what's going to make us great? And then, okay, we can't have 10,000 of them. So let's winnow it down to, you know, four or five. So we ended up with six that we all agreed like, hey, these are our core values of what's going to make us great. Consistency, sacrifice, gratitude, resilience, fearless, and fun. Those were the things that all of us as a team thought, hey, if we can do these over and over and talk through those, this will make us a great team. And when people can watch us play, they'll see that. And so one of the challenges and everybody who's ever read a leadership book or whatever is everybody has those things, but how do you translate it into their actual daily lives? And that's where those standards, we went through each one of those core values and talked about, okay, what's our standard going to be for consistency? And a standard needs to have consequences that are immediate. And we can all point to and say, when we talk about what consistency looks like, because it may be different for you, it may be different for me, but what consistency on our team will look like is if you're late, you run. If you don't come to a workout for something, the whole team's going to run. If you miss a class, you're going to run. And those were like, all of us know that we don't want to have 10,000 rules Mm -hmm. as a coach, Mm -hmm. but having a choice and consequence rule connected to a value to me is where the rubber meets the road of bringing your culture into the actual daily life of playing and of being a team. And so that to me was really critical in out of the gate starting with a base that everybody agreed upon. And I know for sure there are coaches that will be listening to this and be like, what a freaking waste of time. <laughs> Which <laughs> it, I understand it. But one of the biggest challenges of junior college is we turn over yeah. so much. One of my buddies is a professor of organizational behavior. And he told me no question as a athletics team, one of the hardest parts is just that constant turnover. You don't have guys that are eight-year veterans of junior college. I, mm-hmm. I literally have dudes that have been here for six months and they're my veterans, you know? So like yeah. that effort of going to that length of going through these things to me was super important out of the gates, trying to 
bring everybody together. Coach, just before we move off it, you said you asked everybody the why, why they play. And you said you shared with the team why you coach. Yeah. I was wondering if you could share what your answer to why you coach is. Yeah. So my passion is I love building teams and developing leaders and skilled basketball players. And I do that by teaching them principles that will transcend the sport, that will help them in their lives the rest of their lives. And that, to me, is why I coach. I mean, I've coached basketball. Sorry, I'm getting emotional about it. I've coached basketball, you know, for free. All of us have, you know, in one way or another. And I think helping guys learn principles in basketball that there's something special about the fact that you have their full attention. They listen to you more than they listen to their parents sometimes, you know, so that to me is super motivating. What I want is 25 years down the road from now, they come back and I see them with their families and with their, like, that's the, sorry, it's okay, okay. that's the best part of coaching. And so helping them recognize that as like, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, that's what brings me every day is it's certainly not the millions of dollars. It's the joy of seeing them overcome to succeed. And I think when you do that, there's a great book by a leader guy, Simon Sinek. If you guys have read it, that's Start With Why. And to me, that's a critical part is that inspires action in other people is when they know your why. And, you know, he says all the time, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And I think sharing that with your team is critical. And sharing that with your recruits is critical to help them get a feel for what's motivating you. And that really cuts through all the bells and the whistles, right? I mean, I can tell them where I'm going to send them and I can tell them the skills they're going to get here. But like, ultimately, I know I'll be successful when 25 years down the road, they've learned principles and they've become leaders and they're helping other people do it. That's awesome. Absolutely. And coach, thanks for sharing that. I Everybody appreciates hearing that. So thank you very much. Yeah. Coach, you mentioned the six core beliefs that you have. And at the very beginning, your number one goal was developing resiliency in the guys. Yeah. I'd love to just hear, as we now kind of move on the court, how you kind of looked at developing resiliency and how you practiced or what, how you thought about practice to give your guys reps and resiliency. Well, one of the big things we did most of the season was obviously, like most guys, we're making drills competitive losers of the drill to help guys be able to switch that mindset immediately to become resilient is I'd select a guy on the losing team. Like you have one free throw right now to save your team from running. And so to be able to change their minds to immediately move on from the failures that we just experienced in our drill to, I got to wipe that all away and I got to make this free throw, you know? And so those little things for sure are the ways in practice you can develop it. But to me, there's no replacing developing it in the game. Mm. You can give them opportunities in practice to do that. But until the lights are on and all the fans are there, and when we lose, it disappoints everybody. It disappoints your family, right? You can lose in practice and I'm going to run. Great. Yeah. One of the big keys, I worked with a coach who was probably the best I've ever seen at moving on immediately after a game. I'm not kidding you. There was zero feeling sorry for himself. It was immediately, okay, we lost. Hey, what are the things? Let's talk about them real fast, but let's move, you know? And I think helping your guys do that is super important, but we had a stretch in our season where we played 15 out of 18 games on the road. I'm a terrible scheduler, I guess, but also <laughs> part was our league and how it was lined you know, stuff, stuff that you can't control. But the great part was there was a stretch where we lost maybe three or four in a row and continuing to have our guys believe I mean, we play in one of the best junior college leagues in the country. It's super competitive. But one of the things that, I mean, <laughs> when you are a first-year coach, it's amazing. Like the amount of stuff you are consuming as far as your own personal reading and listening to and all of that stuff is off the charts because you just, you have to be giving so much more as a head coach that like, I probably read 50, 60 books this year, you know, on the road, on the bus, yeah. whatever. And just listening to podcasts. But one of the ones that stuck out as we were going through that stretch is uh, I read a good book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. I'm sure you guys mm -hmm. have heard of it, whatever. But there's a little portion in there where he talks about how all of us expect our growth to be linear where, hey, one game comes, we improve. One game comes, we improve. We, you know, And when you're going through the reality of it, he talks about what real growth looks like is it's more, you know, like a curve in which you can't maybe see the immediate impacts as you're doing it. And for sure, when we're going through kind of the losing stretch right there, just showing them that little gap of where what's actually growing and what we expect to grow, he calls that the valley of disappointment. And like, 
<laughs> I mean, we were in that deep, but just showing our guys like, look, there's going to be a breakthrough. At some point, we're going to break through. And that's exactly what happened. We ended up beating the number four team in the country on our home floor, broke through there. And then we won, uh, I think, six out of our last seven to end the season. We beat the number one team in the country on their home floor in the region semifinals, the only team to beat them all year. So like just helping them through that stretch to me, I mean, that's kind of where I feel like my leadership was super critical as far as keeping them engaged, keeping them believing, keeping them having hope and energy and enthusiasm even when the results tell us that we're not there. So mm. when we talk about developing resiliency, I mean, I know it starts with me. Am I continuing to bring that focus and energy even when the results aren't coming exactly when we want them to? Coach, you've just spoken so well so far on building the culture and setting things up and you know building resilience on and off the court. I'd love to pick your brain on your thoughts on your first year and handling stress for you as a coach. I know we talked a little about your team, but you personally going from assistant to head coach, the wins, the losses, you just mentioned how much information you're taking in. There's a lot, obviously, on your shoulders. What did you learn about yourself and handling that aspect of the job? Yeah, luckily, and I think it is critical for anybody trying to become a head coach at some point is working with guys that are great head coaches. I mean, working closely with them because that's where you get to see their decision-making over a spectrum of situations and things. I mean, I've worked with unbelievable coaches at different programs and for sure the ones that had continued consistency and juice, they found exercise for sure as critical as a source of renewal, obviously trying to watch what you eat, which is one of the hardest things. That, yeah, I mean, all of us after we win and lose just want to bury ourselves in food. Which is- <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, the the being able to have that kind of as a source of renewal for sure, family for sure, your confidants that you can talk through stuff. Having a great assistant coach and staff where we can talk through some of our things that are frustrating us. Those things are critical. And then the last one I would say is kind of those sources of inspiration for yourself of like reading those things, finding people that inspire you, and visiting those on your own you know discretionary time to me is, is a critical way to have the energy that you need and to be able to manage the anxieties that come with being a head coach. I mean, for sure. But there's also something to the, like, there needs to be a constitution of a head coach that can handle the failure, the pressure, the disappointment, the person coming up at you and telling you how you should guard, pick and roll. You've never seen before. And you're like, Hey, well, I appreciate that. Thank you for your info. (laughs) I mean, just stuff like that. So it's great. Yeah. Coach. You mentioned the importance of working closely with a head coach and just kind of seeing their decision-making. I love to just hear how your decision-making may have changed or may not have, but just your process when making decisions that ultimately it stops with you. Yeah. Well, because I worked with some really good coaches, one of the key attributes of a coach, and I think this is for leadership generally, is the ability to adapt and adjust and to be fearless in some of the stuff you're going to try. I mean, we are going to just try some stuff and see if it works. Being able to balance the like, look, here are the non-negotiable things that we are doing as a program to like, okay, but also we tried hedging and that's not working very well. It doesn't fit our team very well. Like, okay, I'm going to move to the next thing. What's going to be the next thing? And I think that as a coach is super important and something that we saw successful through this season One of the tweaks that we made through the season, we started like a lot of people with a ton of ball screens, the European continuity ball screen. We did a bunch of that stuff and finding that it didn't fit. We had younger point guards and their decision making was, you know, a challenge where they needed to grow and and maybe we're asking too much of them in these situations. So one of the things is, coach, you want to be able to be consistent in your culture, but you need to be super flexible and open to and fearless in trying new stuff. Like trying, this might not work, but let's give it a ride. Now, obviously it can be to an extreme where you're changing stuff so much that your guys lose faith in what you're trying to do and they don't buy in. And so you as a coach, I mean, that's where they're paying you to have an idea of, okay, what strategies are we going to tweak to make this better for our guys and our personnel and all of that? Coach, zooming back out a little bit and for coaches out there, maybe assistants or whatnot that are looking at getting their first head job. What are some skills, what are some things that you think really help prepare you that coaches should think about as they move from an assistant to a head coach? Well, first three things that happen once you become a head coach. Number one, 
I ruled the world of technology as an assistant coach. As soon as you become a head coach, you become a technology idiot. I don't know why. (laughs) Like I would walk around the office as an assistant coach, like coach, Google Drive, let me show it to you. It's awesome. Like, oh, Synergy. No, I mean, Ken Palm, all this stuff. And then as soon as you become a head coach, it's like, where do I put the DVD in? Coach, we don't use DVD. (laughs) It's crazy. So that, and then you become a terrible ref as a head coach. And then the other thing is you're half as fun. Like, Kids do not laugh at you as a head coach versus an assistant. You're cracking jokes and they're just dying. <laughs> yeah. But those are, those are the fun things you look forward to. But as far as preparing, actually answering your question, like <laughs> number one thing for me was how did I know I was ready is when I was ready to take the L's. I wanted to have my name be the guy that's taking the W's and taking the L's. When I'm okay and comfortable with like we could lose games and we're going to get fired, I feel like I'm ready to do this. You know what I mean? Sure. And I think other things for sure – my dad was a head coach, grew up, you know, coaching all over the place, junior college, high school. So as a kid, I was super lucky to be able to be in his world. I mean, I just absolutely loved it and hung out with him. And I mean, I woke up on hardwood floors from taking a nap while he was running practice. You know what I mean? Like just being able to work closely with great coaches, but there's also a recognition of how hard being a head coach is and how hard coaching basketball is. Like if moving from guys that have been great players to just jumping into being a great head coach is super, super hard. I tell people it's a lot like learning a language. Like I speak Spanish fluently. My wife is from the Netherlands. She speaks Dutch. And like learning a second language is something that initially, if you dive in and expect to be able to do great at it, you're going to be terrible. Like it's super Mm -hmm. hard. So having kind of that long-term view of your growth and like I said, attaching yourself to coaches that have been successful, that you can learn from, that when those situations come up for you, oh, I know Coach Rose would have handled this at BYU. Coach Judkins down at Utah Tech would have handled it like this. Todd Phillips from Salt Lake Community College would have done this. That gives you a great foundation for, okay, now when it's my turn, I'm going to put my spin on it, my brand on it, and all of those things. But I feel like I'm ready. And, you know, having that mindset and then just for sure an absolute growth mindset of, like, I'm diving into this because I'm going to grow. I'm not diving into this so that I can prove that I'm the greatest coach and then I'm boom, I'm going to move up and I'm going to make millions of dollars. Having that mindset of when I do take that head coaching job is like, I'm going to help these guys and do the absolute best job that I can, but expecting my mind's going to get blown. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support, and now back to our conversation. Coach, this has been awesome so far. We want to transition now to a segment we call start, sub, or sit here on the show. So maybe those listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different options, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one, and then we'll have a discussion from there. So Coach May, if you're ready, we'll hop into this first one for you. Let's do it. Okay. This first start, sub, sit has to do with attacking mismatches. So this is three different scenarios that might be tough to teach young players in how to attack this mismatch and we're assuming kind of like a team is switching in this situation so option one is attacking a big with a guard after a pick and roll so they switch the pick and roll you're going to try to attack that big somehow option two is you've somehow gotten a mismatch in the post and you're going to try to play through that post mismatch however you want to do it that's option two the third option is you have some sort of off ball switch in which an offensive rebounder a good offensive rebounder has an opportunity maybe to say, go get offensive rebound and just teaching that guy to go or to get to the positioning, take advantage of his offensive rebounding mismatch. So start sober sit. This is the toughest to teach young players, which mismatch to take advantage of. Which is the toughest to teach young players. Um, The toughest starting would be attacking the post. I just think less and less players these days are taught how to post. Post feeding is a challenge. I mean, I know that was one of the things this year with us having a dominant post player. I mean, it was 
obvious after, I mean, we went to some jamborees and turned the ball over a thousand times and like, okay, post fitting average kid coming out of high school has zero idea how to throw the ball in the post. So I'd say that's probably the toughest one, like having your bigs be able to seal differently with those little guards, having our guards throw it higher with that mismatch so that like we throw it low, guys are spinning, swimming around us, making a pass, making a pass to get that guy moving in the post all those things and then being able to read the backside because everybody's loading to it because it's a switch that to me is number one number two i would say probably the rebounding one um mm-hmm. cuz i've never done that before <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's i mean it's intuitive for sure when we get the switch and you know the big rolls and if my guard shoots it he's going to be in perfect rebounding position with a little guy on him but that's definitely not something that we emphasized and so I'd probably say that's second. And then third, I would give, you know, the boomerang, give it up, give it back. And our guy attacks downhill. Like to me, guards naturally do that well. And it's even better against the big guy. Like that's slower. And that one, we played a bunch of teams that switched in our league. And I'm sure, you know, in college basketball, it's super prevalent and helping our guys do that. But the other one I would just say is prioritizing what's best for our team. Again, our dominant big guy made it so that, I mean, I could have my guard attack a big, but more and more teams are built to switch. And so that athletic four man or five man that switches onto them, maybe we're not still getting such a great advantage out of that as we'd like. And coach, great answers. I want to zoom out of this question and all these for a second. And one of the things Pat and I were talking about before when trying to come up with this question was just the philosophy on like when a mismatch happens, trying to attack that right away versus just continuing to run your offense and maybe naturally let the advantage come to play and maybe just your overall philosophy on when an advantage happens, what you teach your team to do in those moments to either try to take advantage of it or just let the offense keep flowing. Yeah, definitely a tough question for sure. Like most of these, I think it's personnel driven as far as like how good the switch is. And then all obviously guys off ball, how good of shooters they are. Are they spacing the floor? would probably determine how much we're going to, hey, really slam on the brakes and let's make sure we're all taking a look at getting the ball in the post. Now, because of the nature of our team, we have dominant post players. So, I mean, every catch was, we're catching, looking in the post, every catch, we're catching, looking in the post. So, and then quite frankly, we went away from ball screening a ton because of these conversations that we're talking about. You watch really, really good ball screen teams, you know, Arizona's, Gonzaga's, St. Mary's. I mean, those are the ones I'm obviously seeing like crazy over here, having been in their league and all those things. They do a great job of like every catch is a look at that thing and it's really fast decision and boom, we're turning it if we don't have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's usually not the very first switch that we can throw it in. It's boom, ball got turned two or three times. We got that next roll. Okay, there's the switch. High low, we throw it in. That's what I would say is it needs to be something, especially if you're going against switching a ton, is every single catch we're talking about it. In practice, we're working them through taking a look in the post every single time they catch and then going from there. Coach, quickly before we kind of dive back into this question, you mentioned twice now you've moved away during the season from ball screens, and I'm assuming maybe more yeah. off ball screens. So you've touched on it, but maybe digging deeper as to why, and did you find that it helped get the ball more into your dominant post? Yeah, so we went to a little bit more of like Villanova action as far as you know being able to pass, cut through, empty the middle of the floor, and especially against teams that were built for switching, we thought it was super effective because instead of their worlds being like, okay, I'm ready for this next switch. I'm ready for this next switch. There's not a switch. The ball's getting turned and you're playing out of these closeouts and then it creates driving lanes. And so what, at least for us that we found is about, you know, the first half of the season doing heavy ball screens. I mean, I felt like I had 35 great, like middle third ball screens, wing ball screens, step-ups. I mean, you name it. And we're confusing the eye and we're doing all this stuff. And I'm like, this is great stuff. And this is the stuff, like I played point guard, this is the stuff that I would freaking love to do. I mean, it's awesome. And then I got to like, okay, we're turning the ball over at a rate that is, you know, not sufficient for us to get where we want to go. What can we do? And really moving from that to playing that more pass and cut and then trying to immediately post feed if we can or driving in the paint, like that to me is a of a lower skill set than being able to make reads out of ball mm-hmm. screens. I mean, we watch guys in the NBA, we watch guys at the highest levels of college basketball, and it's beautiful. It's unguardable to see these guys making decisions in ball screens. And we all want that, but I also think 
you got to have guys that can do that. And for junior college kids that are freshmen coming out of high school, that there's very few programs in high school where coaches are like, yeah, we have super high level ball screen actions. And, you know, yeah. so helping our guys simplify the game that way was critical. We moved from about 17 turnovers to 12 turnovers. Our last game of the season against Solid Community College in the championship, we lost by five. We had nine turnovers, which was like, boom, now we're talking about getting to a place where we can become even more and more efficient. We ended up being, you know, 14th in the country in efficiency margin because of like making those decisions of simplifying that for our guys, I thought was critical. And it's not necessarily what I would say we would do even this next season, but I felt like, man, at least for me as a coach, I got a place to go. If we're struggling to turn the ball over, especially in ball screens, I've got somewhere I can go to, to where our guys can be efficient offensively. We can get the ball into our dominant post player quicker, faster, and simpler spots and help them be successful. And coach, how much of an offensive overhaul was it? Was it something simply like instead of when the big runs up, throw it to him and then you can play handoff or splits versus the ball screen? Or were you actually implementing, like you said, Villanova type concepts and kind of rehauling your offense? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially we had our play after the play was your European on OD ball screen uh, mm-hmm. where the big's lifting every time. And yeah, I mean, basically it was, nope, this is going to be another play after the play for our team. Okay. And putting it forth like that really helped our guys like, hey, so if I have two dominant bigs, all right, I'm going to have one of those bigs ducking in on the other side while the ball screen's happening. You know, we're going to do that. But just adding a third play after the play for our guys, it was pretty simple that way. And one of the tweaks I would say is we went to Villanova without ball screening. Like we didn't have our big lift up and ball screen. We mm-hmm. just had him stay opposite in the dunker spot or he's ducking in trying to get the catch. Mm-hmm. And so like being able to make that very simple with obviously the guys cutting in that Villanova action created driving lanes for our guys and then created closeouts. So what I would say is it wasn't a total overhaul. It was more like, Hey guys, we're just going to introduce this and hopefully, you know, see how it goes. And, and <laughs> yeah. it, in fact, we did it against Salt Lake, who was, you know, ranked second at the time or whatever. And we saw a big improvement on our ability to take care of the basketball. And so we're like, okay, yeah. we've got something here. Our big guy had 28 points in the game. And it was like, okay, we've got something here that's sticking. Can we keep that going? And will this work long-term for our team? And it ended up being great. I mean, it helped a ton. Sure. Yeah. Coach, just tying it back to the the original question. You know, you've talked about going away from ball screens, help with your turnovers, but then also helping correct the post feed and how to make a post entry pass. I guess, what were your teachings there when you were addressing it with your guys? Yeah, for sure. It just became a bigger chunk of practice. I mean, we started incorporating multiple drills throughout practice of post feeding two on two. We do it three on three where we have to get post touches. And then we also, because we became so post dominant, like teams started monstering and, and so forth. And so we, were able to take advantage of that. It became a general consistent staple of our practice every day was we had some sort of post feeding, some sort of playing out of the post. And it really didn't take very long to get it incorporated in our guys' minds. They became better and better and better at post feeding just from being able to do that every day. And to me, that's one of the huge challenges of being a head coach for the first time is, you know, when you guys did your Rick Patino podcast where he talks about he has eight things that he does every single practice. To me, as a coach, trying to decide what those were in the preseason, I had a like, okay, here's our segments already nailed out. And here's how often I'm going to do this drill, this drill. And how many times a week are we going to hit press break? You know, I had that all laid out. And as the season went, it became really obvious of, okay, Hey, these aspects of that plan are crushing it. And these aspects, we got to scrap those and let's add post feeding and post play Mm -hmm. as part of our daily deal. All right, coach, our next start subsit for you has to do with teaching spacing. And so we're going to give you three different, I guess, kind of games of advantages that you think best help teach spacing to your players. First option would be just a simple two-on-one. Second option, a three-on-two. Or the third option, five-on-four. Okay. (laughs) It's funny you ask that. So Coach Rose at BYU is one of the best assistant coaches in the country. I mean, every season we're in the top 10 in tempo and I mean, we scored like crazy in transition and we every day would do the, he called it nugget drill. Everybody's done it two on one, three on two, four on three, five on four, five on five mm-hmm. drill every yeah. single day, every single day. And I've done the same thing. I do it every single day because which is most important to me, the, you said the third option was four on three or five on four, five on four. To me, that's the most important one. Like that's the most common one. I would start that one. It's the one that's going to happen the most dude falls down on the other end and 
everybody's got an advantage going the other way. That one's super important because making two-on-one decision-making is pretty straightforward and simple. It's not easy. Our guys struggle with it like you know everybody does, but being able to have the wherewithal to see the whole floor, find the open guy, and play out of that advantage to me is really, really hard for our guys. And so it's so funny because when you play with old guys, like I'll still play and old guys just do that so well, like your pros, you're not, I mean, they just, it's something so simple for them. And maybe it's because we're old and slow. We need to be really efficient, you know, but like being able to see the open floor and find the open man is just so intuitive. So part of the game, but for these young kids, like it's super hard. And that was one thing that as the season went, especially when we would play teams that zoned, I noticed a skill that many young kids coming out of high school do not have is that ability and the ability to drive and read back defenders, like to get in the paint and see back defenders. Okay. We've got a two on one in this backside and I got to read this back defender. Like we are rocking kids worlds about that. Like they do not understand that at all. And so I would say that five on four for sure is number one, helping guys be able to see the rotations and move the ball. And then after that, I'd say two on one, because I think it happens more three on two. I mean, our prototypical three on two and go to the elbow and all that stuff. Just, I mean, I bet, it, I bet if we counted it, it happens maybe once a lifetime. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. Great answers. I'd like to just follow up with, it was in your start five and four, but how you helped your guys read back defenders. Yeah. So we ended up having to actually make drills specific for this basically starting with a guy on the wing on one side who's has a guy guarding him and then a guy in that same slot that's like the coach has the ball and a guy defending him. So what we would do is we would throw it to that guy on the wing and that guy on the wing had to immediately drive it. And then on the backside, we'd have two guys on the wing and in the slot and one defender in between them. And so now he has to make that read of as I'm driving, I got to be reading these back defenders. And so we repped that a bunch and it really helped us, especially attacking zones, being able to, as we drive, read guys behind the ball was huge. We would do kind of similarly at the top. We would give the guy, the guy standing at the top, a guy guarding him and then a coach with the ball on the wing and the coach would throw it to him. And the guy who's guarding the coach would sprint to run at that dude to double team him or whatever. So, I mean, it's practicing them help attacking a trap per se, Mm -hmm. or even say a head, whatever it is, but then having in the dunker, both dunker spots, two guys, and then a guy right in the middle of the floor. So as he's attacking this trap, he's reading that back dude. And so to me, that's a next level skill for guards that if you can do that at a high level, I mean, it makes your offense impossible to stop. And coach, I think sticking on this skill development piece. I mean, I think a huge factor is just if you can improve their decision-making, but within that decision-making, each player maybe struggles with the decision-making for different reasons. So as you, as your staff, did you guys talk about like when you would do these drills, being specific or really focusing on each player and their weaknesses or their inabilities and giving them the feedback or maybe putting specific constraints on them within this drill, like, Hey, do this or try this so we can improve your overall decision-making by improving your skill. Yeah. That's something for sure that I got a better feel for as the season went. Like I came in guys, here's the steps to great ball screen offense, set up your guy, come off tight, age the big, read the role, who picks up the role. That's where we're, I mean, so I've got the answers for those things, but what I did a terrible job of and did better as the season went was, okay, this kid's really good at his setup, but when he comes off, he's little, he has a hard time seeing the big. Okay. So I got to address that more with them. Okay, this guy, he's six five, skinny, and guys climb into him and he has a really hard time setting up. For sure, exactly what you're saying is you can't teach those things generally and expect them all to just execute them flawlessly. Like definitely like, okay, here's your issues in ball screens that you struggle with, and how can we help you kind of work through those? But then at the end of the day, when I need to make our team as efficient as possible to win games, for sure there's got to be like, hey. When you have the opportunity to ball screen, you're our best three-point shooter. You're not very good in ball screens. Turn the thing, mm-hmm. you know, either go screen and pop, and then he's coming off the ball screen, you're in the shake or whatever, helping them kind of decide for themselves because they want to be efficient. They don't want to turn the ball over. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a little bit of, of, you know, leveling with them about like, look, why would we want you coming off this ball screen when you're our best shooter, but our point guard who's our best playmaker can come off and you're going to either get a shot or a yeah. big's going to get a layup. You know what I mean? So helping them kind of work through that. Even though there's a little sense of like, well, coach, I can come off ball screens. Like, okay, 
that's fine, but let's make sure we prioritize. But I even, I mean, yesterday in our workout, that same kid that's six, five and skinny, he was being guarded by this lightning quick guard and just helping him with, okay, what's your advantage, your height. Okay. You can't have multiple dribbles. You can't have shake back dribble, you know, in out all that stuff. You do that. He's going to gobble you up and take your ball. You need to make one decision, boom, go downhill. And then you're big enough. You can throw out over the top of this kid and find the open guy. But doing that really helps. Yeah. Coach, you're off the uh, start, summer, sit, hot seat. <laughs> Pass with flying colors. <laughs> Great. Great. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you for playing that with us. So we've got one more question for you before we close. But uh, before we do, this was a really fun conversation. We appreciate yeah. you sharing all you did. And so thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it, you guys. I mean, it's no question you guys are doing an unbelievable job and inspiring to coaches like me. I mean, it's super helpful. If a guy comes to me and asks like, Hey, I want to improve as a coach, like step one, go listen to the podcast. Now, granted, you're going to get 10,000 things that are way beyond what you need, but you're going to have a smorgasbord of stuff you get to pick and you get to listen to. And I just think it helps our growth so much. So I'll make sure all the slappies that that are listening, you know, keep, keep, there we go. (laughs) Thank you, coach. Thank you, coach. Yeah. We we really appreciate that. Our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Yeah, so I would say, for sure, I knew this was coming. Besides my family, which to me is part of this answer, but the two passions of my life are coaching basketball. And then the second I would say is, I think it's super critical for a coach to have either spiritual or philosophical part of their lives that helps answer life's most important questions of who I am as a person, where I'm going, what am I doing here? How do I relate to other people? How important are other people to me in my life? And whether that's religion or spirituality or you know a belief in God, any of those things, to me, having a passion for understanding those things is super important to balancing what you do as a coach. Because I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're like me, you're like everybody, this is what we love to do. We're junkies. I mean, we just, we make up reasons to watch basketball. I know it's tough on my wife, but you know, like, but it can (laughs) consume us. And that's the tough part about this is it can consume us to the point of, you know, mental health is a problem. And so by exploring those other things of your life, to me is super important for keeping basketball in its proper context, keeping basketball in its proper perspective, How do I handle failure as a coach? What jobs am I going to say yes to and going to say no to? What are those things in my life? And to me, that's where this conversation of, you know, spirituality or whatever those are really help you in that sense of, I know coaches and it breaks my heart. I know coaches that are working for other coaches that are abused. And to me, when you explore your spirituality and who you are and what your purpose is, And those things, it helps you kind of deflect from those things and say, no, I mean, I know who I am and I won't participate in being abused. And sometimes when we don't have those things in our lives, all we see is like, man, I've got to take this job. I know this is going to be terrible to work for this dude, but it's going to move me to where I want to go. And so ultimately, unless you have that anchor in your life to balance basketball, basketball can consume you. You guys all know dudes that can only do it for a few years and then they're out because it just the pressure, the expectations, the lifestyle super hard, all of those things. I mean, it's so hard. So that's the biggest thing I would say for a coach, you know, how you balance those things, how you understand how you relate to other people. There's a great book I would I would recommend to people. It's called How Will You Measure Your Life? It's written by Clayton Christensen's his name. And I would say the same thing as a coach. How are you going to measure your life as a coach? If it's just the W's and the L's at the end of the day, then that's fine. You can measure that. But for me, I love it. It's just at the end of the day, years down the road, when I see my guys and the lives that they have, that to me has grown out of a spiritual exploration for me of, hey, what I'm supposed to do in this world is help these kids grow. And so that would be the number one investment I'd say. And and that for sure is part of my family. My family's a huge part of that. And so for coaches, going and exploring those questions of who you are, why you're here, what role does that play in your life, to me will help big time in balancing the awesomeness of basketball. Hey, let's dive right in. That was one of the more powerful episodes I think we've done. You know, Coach Gonzalo Rodriguez had one recently with us that kind of got to this really deep level about family and layering in 
off the court stuff that was really impactful too, just a couple of weeks ago. And Coach May, I mean, really, really a great conversation. I think we're both going to get into a bunch of notes here, but fun to kick this off with him. I agree. It was cool to see his genuine passion and enthusiasm for coaching and the game of basketball. We talked about it in the episode a little bit, but this was about a, a year in the making or, you know, maybe eight, nine months in the making. We originally talked with Coach May about coming on the podcast last year, right when he got the job at Snow College. And he had the great idea and the patience to say, hey, let's can we hold off for <laughs> eight, nine months? Um, and he said, hey, why don't I basically keep a journal, take notes of what I learned my first year as a head coach, and then we can do the podcast after the season and I'll tell you all the good, the bad, the ugly. And so that was a little bit of the backstory. And I'm really glad we did that because I think we got a really true account of a great coach in his first year. Definitely. I mean, again, appreciate his honesty. I guess diving right into it for me, I knew we were going to talk on it because he was nice to share some thoughts before we hopped on, but we hear a lot too, the importance of these non-negotiables or what your standards are. And, you know, in our prep, you know, I think I said, yeah, it'd be cool to kind of see how he landed on those or did he go into the season with them? And, you know, to your credit, you brought it up. I'm sure it's probably something that you just learn as you go and then getting into it that, yeah, it was all worked out in the preseason. And I mean, I won't regurgitate it, but the process he went through with his guys, taking the time to share his whys, learn their whys, and then get the hows. I think it's just always interesting, you know, culture again, everyone talks about the importance of it, but getting into like what he actually did to establish culture, establish the non-negotiables that everyone can hold themselves accountable for. And then as always kind of hearing what they were, we hit on resiliency and just how then like, okay, if resiliency is going to be one of your core principles, what did you do? What does that look like in practice? So, and throwing it back to you, I guess what stood out, I mean, on your couple pages of notes. Yeah. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) There was a ton in there. I thought there was just a really powerful moment when we followed up about his why of coaching and it was really powerful. And I thought that that was really important, obviously to hear his thoughts, but then I think as a player to hear your coach talk about why they do what they do is a really powerful way to start building the trust and the foundation of things. And there's actually, and I'm not going to remember the video and maybe someone's listening can find it, but there's a video out there of a coach who just got their first job, I believe it was on the women's side, and they filmed them talking about their why, like why they coach. And it was a really powerful video and the team is watching this coach explain their history and what they do and why they do it. I think sometimes as players, you think like, well, this is just this man or woman that's my coach and they're doing it because they don't even know why they're doing it. They just are here to make me take good shots and not turn it over (laughs) and win some games. And I think the humanizing element of this is why I do this. This is what it means to me and my family. I mean, what a powerful foundation to set. And I thought that you could hear it in his statement. And I just think whether you do this or not was interesting and powerful to listen to him talk about that for me. I really pulled that out and started that like four times on my paper here. (laughs) The rare four star. (laughs) You know, it also got brought up too when we talked about decision-making and his takeaway and the value of explaining why's to his team, why they're going to start two bigs or whatever it's going to be. And he went on to say like the feedback they got from after the season was it was important to the players to hear the why. And yeah, I think it really just helps create buy-in. And I think throughout probably every podcast we talked about, or most recently with Cheryl Reeve and recently with Josh King, like the importance of just buy-in. And I think there's a major component of buy-in is being vulnerable as a coach and also explaining why to your guys. And yeah, like you said, kind of humanizing them and not making you think the coaches here is just to tell me what I can't do. But yeah, also there's more than that. Right. When a group comes up with shared values and the group comes up with shared mission statements that they create as a group, the buy-in is so much more powerful than just someone at the top dictating down, this is what we believe in, this is what we do. When the group comes up with it and the group shares it, it's more powerful. And then it's easier for the coach to hold those accountable throughout the season because it's, hey, we decided on this. As a group, we came up with these things that are important. And so if you're like the social contract or whatever that they say that gets broken when the players come up with it, as a group is something that's 
a harder for the players to break and I think easier for a coach to build on. I think like throughout that whole first segment, you just heard how good he is at putting those things in and building that culture quickly at a JC level where it's hard to do. Like he mentioned, you get kids for a short amount of time and you got to build this quickly. And I felt some similarities between him and coach Sammy Doucette, OCC women's basketball and how quickly they build culture at a JC level. And she just won a state title in the state of California. Yeah, definitely with coach, you said, and I was also thinking too, with coach Fern, he also was big on building culture. Wow. You took it way back. Yeah. That was a blast from the past. Throwback. But he was also very good about these conversations and building these shared values. Absolutely. And I also just thought it was really important when he went over what kills a team. Yeah. The laziness, the selfishness. It's nice for players to hear what hurts a team also so they can hold themselves accountable. So I really appreciate that thread. Moving to start sub sit a lot in there, but I'll kick it back to you on a takeaway there. I guess it'd be a tangent or kind of where we went down with just attacking switch and then how he moved away from the ball screen to more off ball action, which I think would be kind of a common thread that we've hit on with several coaches. You know, everyone's more and more prepared to guard the ball screen. I mean, the ball screen is a complex action, especially at the lower levels, having a guard that can navigate it. So in that sense, yeah, moving to off ball makes a lot of fairly reasonable when not every team is practicing it defensively and decisions maybe become a little bit easier for your guys as it relates to specifically with turnovers and the big benefit he saw from cutting down their turnovers. So enjoyed that. Enjoy, always enjoy like coaches reasonings for doing things for how they corrected the post feeding. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I'm just going to double down on your point. I took two notes when he was discussing with you the ball screen stuff and then moving away from it and the decisions throughout the season to go more Villanova, dribble drive, open the middle of the floor. Mm -hmm. I just wrote down gold with two exclamation points. Um, (laughs) So, and I thought that as he was explaining it, I thought you were hearing the thoughts of an emerging already really great coach and their thought process on how to actually make a team better mid season. And I thought aside from what he said, Hearing his thoughts on how he went piece by piece to go a little away from ball screens, whether or not that's what your team can do or not, hearing him understand his team, what his team was good at, what they weren't good at, how he adjusted and how that led to more success in areas that were helpful. I just thought that was my takeaway in that portion about going away from the ball screen. That was really important. Just moving to the second one about spacing. I know you and I went back and forth on which star subset to ask and how to ask this question. And I'm really glad you asked it the way you did. I guess we were maybe thinking, do we do more like 3-on-0, 4-on-0, 5-on-0, teach spacing? Or what you ended up going with was the disadvantage drills. And I think that was a great choice on your part. So kudos to you. And my takeaway from this was also the area I wish we had more time on to go deeper if we had extra time. And that was, we started talking about the five on four spacing and how he prefers to teach through that and all that. One of the harder things for me or things that I'm interested in is how coaches teach when there's a slight advantage and you're flowing into your offense, let's say defensive rebound. And and one of the offensive rebounders is a step behind Mm -hmm. the play or whatever it is. And you have numbers. Coach Isalo talked about this, the different advantages you can have on offense on the break back on the podcast. So teaching a team whether to run the space and hold the space because you have a five on four and it's better to be spaced and play through that advantage versus when to flow into your action. And there's this like moment of trying to teach. You didn't need to get into splits or ball screen because you have five on four, just find the deepest guy in the corner or find the extra pass. And that's going to give you the corner three or the layup or the rim attack you want. And it's a really a delicate thing to to teach, hold space, run to space. Okay, now flow into our action. Um, and so I guess I would have gone a little deeper if we had more time with him on, does he have teaching points on these disadvantaged drills and how they flow into their offense? I agree on, on your note, just the importance of quick decisions and skill development. And so in those situations, like you said, like we have the advantage, let's keep playing, move the ball, find the open man versus wasn't really there, we would have been better served to get into an action. And of course, our conversation hit on them like reading the back defender. But to me, kind of overarching too, and what we've hit on in the last couple of podcasts is just, you know, he chose to start 
the five on four just because it had the greatest context. And I think it's important mm-hmm. in a practice just to practice what you do in the game and make sure the drills you're doing all have context for the game is what stood out for me there in that segment. For sure. And I think we both weren't really sure how to ask that the attacking, the mismatches, the off-ball dunker rebounding corner crash yeah. advantage. I don't know if I asked it correctly, and we both smartly didn't follow up about it throughout the conversation. (laughs) This seemed understood what we were going for, though. There are better places to go with the conversation, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad we, I'm glad we went with it. And he was kind. He didn't, you know, pin us down on what are you talking about, man. (laughs) He didn't ask us to explain our whys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again to Coach May. Thanks everybody for listening. And Pat, we'll do this again next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>